You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. I think you would have to be insane to invest in a coal with CCS facility these days. It's sort of game over. Or if Asia can phase out coal as fast as France phased out oil in the 1970s and 80s, we'll be on track to 1.5. For July 6th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. We need to talk about our climate models. I don't mean what they say about our climate future or how they work. We've covered those questions in depth on many previous episodes, including the 16 episodes of our Climate Science miniseries. And if you haven't listened to those yet, you can find them by going to our website, clicking on the Episodes button on the top navbar, and then choosing Climate Science miniseries from the miniseries drop-down box. No, I mean how they're constructed, what assumptions they make, and how their very design can bias them towards certain outcomes. We touched on this a bit toward the end of our conversation in episode 173 with Glenn Peters of the Cicero Center for International Climate Research, and his comments raised some questions for me, like why so many of our climate models find that carbon capture and sequestration, or CCS, will play a large role in helping us combat global warming when CCS doesn't really even exist as a commercial technology, at least not in the way that the IPCC defines a climate mitigation technology or why we model the world as if all sectors of the economy in all countries would ever implement the same policy for carbon pricing, with all economic actors being rational, when we know that that's just not how the world operates. Why don't our models even attempt to reflect the fragmented, irrational, and irregular way that the world actually works, when we know for a fact that the transition is going to be a bumpy ride into a disorganized future? Shouldn't climate modelers be giving policymakers guidance that they can actually use? If global carbon pricing never materializes, such that CCS has a real market opportunity, as many of our integrated assessment models assume, where will that leave us in taking action on climate change? And why don't I hear anyone else asking this question, which seems to me to be both extremely fundamental and extremely important? Today's guest is a colleague of Glenn's who has studied integrated assessment models, or IMs, for climate in depth, and she has some startling insights to share on these questions. Dr. Ida Sognes is a senior researcher at the Cicero Center who got her doctorate degree from the University of Cambridge on uncertainty and robustness of IM scenarios, as well as the biases in IPCC scenario ensembles. She is currently researching how IMs and scenario ensembles can offer scientific insights and inform climate policy, and how to make emission scenarios useful to decision makers. She has a broad interdisciplinary background with a doctorate in land economy from Cambridge, a master's of science in energy and resources from UC Berkeley, as well as a master's of science in mathematics and physics, and a bachelor's of science in political science from NTNU, and I'm thrilled to have her on the show. In this conversation, she shares some original research findings that I think are real bombshells, as well as further evidence that the world is currently on a trajectory for between two and three degrees of warming by the end of the century. She also shares her perspective on why the climate modeling community has been so reluctant to just say that plainly. Then in the news segment, we'll note the latest climate pledges from the G7 countries. We'll check out the latest EV outlook from Bloomberg NEF. We'll see how much new solar China is building this year. We'll take a look at Los Angeles's move away from natural gas appliances. And we'll applaud the withdrawal of oil companies from Anwar. But before we go to the interview... Announcements, announcements, announcements! 
we're enormously pleased to announce our latest group subscriber, the International Energy Agency, or IEA. Listeners will remember that we have had several guest experts from the IEA on our show previously, including Tim Gould in episodes 148 and 171, and Christoph McGlade in episode 166. The IEA is an essential source of energy data and expert insights as the world tries to navigate the energy transition, and we are absolutely chuffed to have them join our subscribers. Welcome. And speaking of government agencies, we'd like to thank the following organizations for purchasing group licenses to the Energy Transition Show so that all of their staff can access our entire catalog of complete shows as well as our other features. So, in alphabetical order, here's a big thank you to... Australian Department of Industry, Science, Energy, and Resources, Australian Renewable Energy Agency, or ARENA, the Colorado Public Utilities Commission, or CPUC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, the International Energy Agency, or IEA, King Abdullah Petroleum Studies and Research Center, or CAPSARC, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, or LBNL, National Renewable Energy Lab, or NREL, New South Wales Department of Planning and Environment, the Nova Scotia Department of Natural Resources and Renewables, and the U.S. Embassies. Members of these organizations have told us that a big part of the value proposition that appeals to them is our extensive show notes on each episode. For example, the show notes for episode 171 on eliminating imports from Russia had over 100 references that I consulted in creating the show and that I entered into that show's bibliography. And I'm very pleased that researchers are finding value in our offering beyond the podcast recordings themselves, because I do put a lot of work into the show notes. So if you think your governmental or non-governmental organization could make use of our research resources as well, just drop a line to accounts at energytransitionshow.com and we'll get the process started. The enrollment process is simple. And if you're considering a career in energy transition but haven't checked out our job board in a while, you should log into our website and peruse the new listings. There's something for everyone, so join the legions of people working to advance the energy transition today. And now, our conversation with Ida Sognes, recorded May 23rd, 2022. So, let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Ida, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much for having me. Much of the research that you've done has focused on integrated assessment models, or IAMs, like those used in the IPCC climate science framework. And those models generate scenarios for things like how much global warming we'll have in the future, or how the climate will react to various carbon dioxide concentrations, or how quickly climate policies can be implemented to limit warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees C. And the more I study climate science and the effects of energy transition policies, the more I see that many people don't really understand IMs or the scenarios they generate, or how likely they are, let alone what it all means in terms of future global warming. And I really don't think lay people understand the overall picture of climate change as reflected in the IPCC report. So would you agree that there is a need for a better understanding of IMs and the scenarios they generate? Yes, absolutely. I think there is a lot of misunderstanding of IMs, what they do and what they tell us. And that's not really such a big surprise as these models are huge and very complicated. And to be honest, often not communicated very well, especially to a lay audience or even to policymakers for whom these models and the scenarios are actually intended, or even to scientists in related areas of research, as I've found a lot of other scientists are confused about IAMs as well. And it took me personally years to figure out what IAMs actually do and how they work. And I think the first thing to note is that IAMs 
don't make predictions or even project trends forward, and they don't necessarily tell us what the most likely pathways are. So what IMs do for the most part is tell us the optimal or least cost pathways towards a given climate targets. And IMs are generally described as models that integrate economics, energy, and climate. But really, I think one thing that doesn't come across is that economics in IMs, I would say, is the foundation, whereas energy and climate are more the additions to a fundamentally economic framework. That's interesting. I've never heard anybody kind of describe it that way, that it's fundamentally an economics study. Yeah, I think that's not often said in that way, and maybe some others would disagree with me. There's different terms that are used to describe IMs, and I think that's also one of the sources of confusion here. Among other things, there are two distinct groups of IMs, which are really important to distinguish. First, there are the simple analytical cost-benefit IMs, and these models essentially weigh the cost of climate mitigation against the benefits of climate mitigation, which are reduced climate change impacts, in order to identify the optimal level of climate change and therefore the optimal level of mitigation. Now, the answer to this question is basically found using very simple, very small models. The simplest one of these is only 16 lines of code. That's the DICE model from Nordhaus. But the answer to this question is contingent on a number of uncertain and heavily debated assumptions. And whereas these models were quite prominent in the early IPCC reports in the 90s and early 2000s, they've become less popular with time. And I think that's largely because the results have been found to depend on a few key parameters whose values are really heavily debated, such as the discount rate and the damage function. And additionally, we now have the Paris Agreement and the global community have reached some sort of consensus around what level of global warming is acceptable or dangerous. And in that sense, the cost-benefit IMs have also lost some of their importance or some of the role because we no longer need these models to determine the climate target for us. The other kind of IM, which is the one that I've been primarily working with, are the ones that are responsible for the detailed transition pathways that you find in the current six assessment report and the working group three reports on climate mitigation. And these are often called detailed process-based IMs or complex IMs. And these are much, much larger numerical models with hundreds, if not thousands of assumptions and input data, and they generate large numbers of outputs that are disaggregated into different countries, sectors, and technologies. And what these IMs do, as opposed to the cost-benefit ones, is that they find the most cost-effective trajectories towards a given climate target which is typically these days the Paris Agreement target of 1.5 or 2 degrees. And then they take that target and calculate very detailed and disaggregated transformation pathways for the energy system and land use change. So what's important here again is that, and what I mean when I say that they're fundamentally about economics, is that the way that they find the pathways is basically looking at costs and taking the emissions reductions when and where they are cheapest over the century in order to meet the predefined target. That's really interesting. I've never heard that description either. <laughs> wow, you're kind of blowing my mind here, Ida. All right, so, I mean, I understand, of course, that 
you know, it's sort of assumed, I guess, that whatever our policies are and whatever our strategies are, we're always going to look for the least cost way of achieving them. Mm -hmm. But it hadn't really occurred to me that the IMs related to climate would be so driven by the economics as opposed to just the objective of reducing carbon emissions. Well, I suppose they're doing both. Right. But given that there are, you know, an almost infinite amount of ways that you could reach two degrees by 2100, if you break it down into different technologies, different sectors, different regions, and different timings of action, then the way that these models pick one pathway among this huge number of options is by using costs. Right. So that's by using economics. Right, which is why CCS, for example, is selected late in the hierarchy, right? Because it's expensive relative to just putting up another wind farm or a solar farm, which is cheap. Well, that makes sense to me. All right, well, I think in terms of the public understanding of IAMs, I think there's several major issues. One is just the technical aspect of understanding how the models and the scenarios work. Another is in trying to relate those technical characteristics to the real world. So how do we translate what these technical issues are into actual things happening in the world. And a third is the challenge of communicating these things in ways that are comprehensible to lay people, while also being nuanced and precise enough to satisfy scientific audiences <laughs> who would much rather bury their audiences in incomprehensible details than expose themselves to the slightest risk of saying anything that might be attacked. So I'd like to take these issues in turn, starting with understanding how the modeling actually works. And before we get into it, I should mention that We've discussed how the IPCC's climate models and warming scenarios were constructed with one of its modelers, Bas van Raven, in episode 51. And we discussed what the warming scenarios mean with your colleague, Glenn Peters, in episodes 57 and 112. And we had quite a vigorous debate about why the IPCC's modeling framework up through its fifth assessment really didn't seem to represent the progress of energy transition with Michael Liebreich and Nico Bauer in episodes 116 and 117. And then we also had Glenn back on the show just recently in episode 173 to talk about how those issues have been at least partially addressed in the sixth assessment, also known as AR6, which was recently released. And then we began our coverage of the topic, actually, in our discussion with the producer of this show, Justin Ritchie, in episode 49, about why the RCP 8.5 scenario, the particular extreme warming scenario in all the potential scenarios of greenhouse gas concentrations, was unlikely, even though it was featured prominently in media coverage about the climate. So I think the climate modeling community now accepts that RCP 8.5 is unlikely, but that certainly wasn't the case when he published his thesis on it in 2017. And we've talked about various other issues with the modeling and scenarios and communications and other shows. So I guess I'm just offering all that preamble as a way of saying we've explored this topic fairly extensively already, but I'd like to get your perspective. What do you think some of the major problems are with climate scenarios and the role that these integrated assessment models play? That's a very good question. So thank you for posing that. I have a lot to say on that. Oh, good. And I've come to the right place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and to begin with, I think it's useful to remind ourselves of something quite basic, which is that an IAM, like any other model, is simply a set of equations or relationships 
which are all uncertain in, in input data. And if either the equations of the input data are poor, then the model results, which is in this case, the scenarios will be poor. And I like to relate that to at least three main challenges with IMs, the way that I see it, and therefore with the scenarios. The first thing is the size. IMs are really very large models. They consist of hundreds, if not thousands, of equations and parameters, and they're often built over really long periods, even decades, of time by multiple different people, none of which have the full overview of the entire model. And the sheer size of IMs leads to multiple challenges. First, it makes it really difficult to determine what assumptions determine the results that you're seeing. And this again means that one rarely knows how changes to those assumptions will affect results. So in more technical language, sensitivity and uncertainty analysis of IMs are rarely conducted because of their size. And even though modelers try to look at certain assumptions, the size of IMs and the number of assumptions in IMs means that only a limited set of assumptions have been explored in the literature. And that's really, I think, a fundamental problem because it means that we don't know how robust the results of IMs are. And at the same time, there's no way that you could integrate like a total or a complete set of assumptions. It would just make the models unwieldy. So at some point, the modelers have to decide what are the important assumptions that we really have to model and which ones are we going to just kind of put to the side. Yes, absolutely. They do. And secondly, also, I think because of this size related, there is also a lot of input parameters. And keeping all of those input parameters up to date also becomes very time consuming because of the size again. And this means that often some of the input parameters lag behind, especially when you consider the time that it takes to design a scenario, to run a scenario, to analyze the results, write a paper, then get the paper published. Often by that time, the input parameters might already be outdated. And then if you additionally consider the time it takes to get those scenarios into the IPCC reports, it takes even longer. So this takes years, and by the time the scenarios are published in the IPCC reports, much of the input data, for instance, on present emissions or technology costs, might already be outdated. Mm -hmm. And all of that is a sort of inherent issue that you can't necessarily get away from because in order to get the sectoral and technological details that you want, you need to have large and complicated models. But it is an issue to be aware of that makes it challenging to work in this domain. Hmm. And I would say thirdly, in addition to the size, the uncertainties are just very large. Right. And this is not a surprising point, but it's worth making because most of the equations and the input parameters that are used in IMs are associated with large uncertainties. Hmm. For example, future GDP growth, technology costs, the rate of technology adoption. These are all very important, but at the same time, highly uncertain inputs to IMs. And again, because they're so large and because there's so many different equations and input parameters, these uncertainties in IMs essentially multiply. Right. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think a lot of people 
don't really understand what climate modelers are up against when they try to build these models. You know, they sort of assume, I guess, maybe that these are experts, these are scientists, they have a godlike understanding of the world, <laughs> and they're able to turn everything into numbers. But that's not really the case. In the best case, they're doing an approximation of a world that is too complex to model. And so those three categories of things that you mentioned, just the unwieldy size of it all, the uncertainties and the sheer number of assumptions that they have to make in order to simplify the modeling are all huge challenges for the modeling, no matter who you are or what you're trying to do or how much data you have available. Absolutely. And for each of those assumptions and simplification, you have to make a judgment. Yeah. And modeling is as much an art as it is a science, I think a lot of people would say. And those judgments, that's just an inherent part of modeling. Right. But we're talking about the future, not just the near future, but a 70 or 80 years ahead. So it's no surprise that it's a very challenging task. But I think at the same time, scientists as a rule are sort of uncomfortable with the art part of what they do. Like they would love to be able to all say, I'm standing on a solid ground of empirical data and nothing can change that, right? <laughs> There's no one can question that. Where in reality, there is a lot of art involved in making these assumptions and in choosing the important factors and in deciding how you're going to approach the modeling task. I think culturally, there's a bias against sort of owning up to the art part of it or even spending too much time dwelling on why did you make that simplifying assumption or why did you make it the way that you made it? Yeah, and I guess I would say here that what's important is to make those assumptions and those judgments clear and transparent and understandable to the scenario user, essentially. Yeah. All right. Well, for many years now, I've wondered why so many climate models assume that carbon capture and sequestration, or CCS, and especially the version of it based on using biomass and then capturing the CO2 from that process, often referred to as bioenergy CCS or BECS, will play very large roles in the energy transition solution set when it barely exists in any commercial way. In fact, as I mentioned to Glenn in episode 173, it doesn't exist at all in the way that it's defined in the AR6, which disqualifies CCS methods that are used for additional fossil fuel extraction. That's essentially what nearly all commercial CCS projects today are doing. So why on earth has it continued to feature so prominently in the IMs? Glenn pointed me to a paper published in Nature Climate Change in October 2021, on which you were the lead author, that addressed this issue. It found that models that assume the existence of economy-wide carbon prices are essentially heavily biased to choose CCS, whereas models that don't assume economy-wide carbon prices don't. To me, this was a pretty shocking finding. So let's dig into that paper a bit. First of all, tell us what your hypothesis was here. What were you hoping to discover with this study? So originally, this paper was not going to be about CCS. What we wanted to do was to essentially create more realistic reference scenarios. And what I mean when I say realistic is scenarios that don't start with the end temperature goal, like two degrees and work backwards, but scenarios that instead project forwards from current policies and pledges and extrapolate these trends into the future in order to assess where we're likely headed in terms of temperatures. So we wanted to 
have the temperature outcomes being an output to our analysis, not an input like it is in most integrated assessment modeling analysis. And that was really the main purpose of our study to begin with. In the process of doing that, however, we needed some kind of measure of the effort in 2030 that those current policies corresponded to. And for that, we used the economy-wide carbon price because that was something that we could implement across all our models. And by doing that, we essentially ended up with two different sets of scenarios, one using actual real-world policies that are in place today, and one using economy-wide carbon prices to reach the same levels of emissions reductions in 2030. So what happened was that when I was analyzing the data, I thought, well, I have these two sets of scenarios now. I should look into whether or not there are any significant differences. It would be interesting to see whether there are any. And essentially what I did was look through all of the 300 and something outputs, thinking that, well, real world policies are certainly more targeted than an economy-wide carbon price. Maybe we'll see some increases, for instance, in renewable energy. And what I found was that, yes, there were some increases in renewables, such as wind and solar, but the difference in this was not as large as the difference that we found in CCS, which was really quite stark and therefore was the one that ended up in the paper. That's really interesting. So this is basically an accidental finding. It was. It was a true finding, I guess you could say. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. Item 1. On May 27th, climate and energy ministers from the Group of Seven, or G7 countries, pledged to significantly curb the use of coal and other fossil fuels for electricity generation. The announcement by Germany, Britain, France, Italy, Japan, Canada, and the U.S. stated their agreement to, quote, further commit to a goal of achieving predominantly decarbonized electricity sectors by 2035, including, quote, concrete and timely steps toward the goal of an eventual phase-out of domestic, unabated coal power generation, end quote. 
The group also pledged to end financing of fossil fuel projects abroad by the end of this year, with a few exceptions, to end subsidies for heavily polluting fuels by 2025, to commit to decarbonizing transport by 2030, and to decarbonize industry, particularly within the steel and cement sectors. They also pledged to increase climate financing for developing countries by 2025, and called on the world's development banks to submit their plans in time for the COP27 climate summit in November. The world's richest nations have pledged repeatedly to provide at least $100 billion annually in climate financing to help poorer countries pay for their energy transitions, but they have yet to fulfill that promise. Item 2. On June 1st, Bloomberg NEF released its annual Electric Vehicle Outlook report, which for my money is the best report in the business on EVs. Here are a few highlights offered on Twitter by the team's lead, Colin McCarricker, and Chief Content Officer. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. XE Network.